Unmet need community. This is the year to develop AI healthcare apps. There's never been a better time. And the cost of developing something truly meaningful is approaching zero. So this year I'm asking for your ideas as well. I'll be sharing mine as I am on this episode, but if you have an idea, I'm interested in learning about it. Email is jeff at jeffsmith.co. On today's episode, I talk about a big data play called Big Easy and how combining prior tech waves with the new, new thing can create powerful value. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hello. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Unmet Need. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about a new app idea called The Big Easy. Now, The Big Easy is something kind of silly, and it's a whimsical play off of big data. Do you remember that? Personalized medicine, big data. I remember, fun story, 2019, I was in New York City. Is at the end of the year at this great foundation think tank called the Rombaum Foundation. It's Jewish nonprofit that invests in advancing healthcare research and ultimately innovation. But it was an incredible meeting. And again, this is 2019. That was only five years ago. But at the time, personalized medicine, this was the age of CAR-T, uh, chimeric angiotensin receptor therapy. But it was about personalized discovery of disease, personalized therapy. And the, the thing that was gonna enable personalized medicine was big data. Now look, big data, I love data. It is there seriously as a person that has tried to navigate the opportunity and risk of life and making decisions based on probabilistic betting. Ultimately, what I've been trying to do at a really low level is simulate what a computer can do. However, when you take a computer's ability to assign probabilities to say a Texas Hold'em hand, and then at a really high probability of success, choose the next best decision, you know, that's playing, you know, chess with a computer sim. It's very different than when in real-time conversational ability, an LLM can access, so like looking up, going into your, your memory, it can go into and it can see like gigabytes of data. It can analyze it quickly and it can perform the regressive analysis, the forward modeling, all of what I think is probably a $20 billion layer of SaaS products that exists to provide information layers, insights, trends on top of ERPs and CRMs. That whole layer of business, it is technically up for grabs. And so with that backdrop in mind, I wanna kick off this episode talking about big data in medicine. And I won't spend too much time on that, but I wanna give a couple representative examples to really bring it to life. And then from there, it'll be a succinct pitch on why the Big Easy should be the next app you work on, hopefully with me. And remember, if any of these ideas are interesting to you, I believe the quote is, in the end, the only true, the most valuable resource of all is time. And so 
Like you, I have a scarcity of it, and I'm so focused on the mission of establishing a new standard of care for circumferential cervical fusion in Providence medical technology that uh, a lot of these ideas I would love to support through mentorship, investing, or any other arrangement that works. So anyway, back to this representative example. All right, so what big data, when I think of big data, and I'm by no means an expert or even technically qualified to share my thoughts, but I'll do it anyway. So when I think of big data, the best example to me is when there is a computer with zero bias, and that's, an, that's a key point. A computer doesn't have a bias the way the scientific method has a bias. If you imagine most scientific research, you start off with a hypothesis, which is, in a sense, a bias. It's at least a hope. It's your aspiration. You have a belief that there is a certain conclusion, and then you're going to try to prove that belief through experimentation. And so when we think about clinical data, human, even pet, when we think of clinical evidence, we typically think of big data as, as what's like would be a meta-analysis. And so a computer that can read all the literature on aortic valve replacement. And it can, it can give you a longitudinal view of the evidence, how things have improved, questions to be answered. That in of itself has massive value and uh, perhaps would be an idea for another Unmet Need episode because that app would be called Unmet Need. <laughs> That's a pretty simple app idea, but we'll save that. However, here's a different idea. Now, notice the difference. In the idea of when you have the scientific process, you're starting with hypothesis, you're testing it, and then you're trying to see if you can prove it. Maybe you disprove it. There's no question that you've advanced the understanding of that specific you know, sphere of, of knowledge because you either proved or disproved. Okay, so that is very iterative, takes a lot of experiments, and reminds me of the famous Thomas Edison quote, the easiest way to find a needle in a haystack is to pick up one haystack at a time, one needle. Wow, that was a poor delivery. But you get the drift. Big data, the promise of big data, I remember I was reading an X feed at the time known as Twitter, and it was a Cleveland clinic, and it was big data. And I, I guess I had somehow followed on Twitter big data influencers. But this is what's so interesting. Now, again, obvious hypothesis, prove it or disprove it. Big data is saying, all right, computer mind, LLM, Here's a bunch of data, data sets. Now, keep in mind, these data sets, they're not structured in the sense that they don't all have the same data values that you can represent in columns and, and then do something like, you know, a um, relational database, like an Oracle database. That's like those that data, kind of one early database stuff. These are a PDF, it's a video, a, a body of data that's all video, it's a million text messages. It is whatever data sets you feed to the LLM. But now you give it a goal. Look for patterns, non-obvious patterns. And you can describe what obvious patterns would be. 
And you could apply this to a business. You could apply this to um, a compensation plan where some of the non-obvious outcomes that this, this set of incentives could result in. And an LLM, one is going to stand on the shoulders of itself, which is it read everything in the world and it's really, really smart. But then it's going to take this, this, these corpus, these, like, these different bodies of data that you decide to provide it. So bringing it back to my representative example, I promise, we'll keep this thing, we'll keep this on track. The Cleveland Clinic did some similar situation and they came up with an observation. Now keep in mind, this isn't a hypothesis where you then try to prove it and find it in a data set that you create artificially in many ways in a contrived way because you have a tight inclusion criteria, exclusion, you have a statistical plan, and ultimately you power it to the best of your ability to reach the conclusion that you set out to reach. So that's premeditation of a scientific research conclusion. Now, scientific discovery, it would be non-obvious that that is an example of big data. And to my understanding, this was not an LLM. It could have been some version of AI. But the Cleveland Clinic found this uncanny correlation to men over 50. I'll, I'll botch this, but more or less, this is it. They found that men that were taking regular sildenafil, which is Viagra, which is also a vasodilator that was originally developed and went into human clinical trials as a vasodilator to, for, to reduce hypertension. And what they found accidentally, and it's a famous anecdote where the subjects that were enrolled were having no benefit in their blood pressure, yet seemingly kept needing more pills, <laughs> right? So, it was a non-obvious finding that there was a peripheral vasodilation, a preferential dilation of the male genital. And so you had this unintended consequence. Now, when the Cleveland Clinic, which had millions of records, they found this really tight correlation. It was, a, it was I guess you called an inverse correlation. Men that took these medications did not go on to develop neurodegenerative disease, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. They didn't have the pattern of symptoms that they had, and that particular intervention of pharmacologic therapy for erectile dysfunction, that pattern. Now, there was no mechanism of action discussion. It was just simply an observation. Wow, this is a very, very tight correlation. Now, to me, when I read that, I, I remember at the time, I was reading a book called An Elegant Defense, which was written by a New York Times journalist who had followed the cancer treatment journey of his childhood best friend, who had been the golden person. You know, he, everything came easy to him, life was great. And the way he was pursuing his cancer, ultimately his diagnosis and treatment, it was right at the time again of CAR-T, and so it was a very intelligent and articulate journalist's attempt to break down how the immune system works. And really, I mean, in, in, in an effect, by, by breaking it down for a layman's terms, it reduced it to first principles, or at least to a point that I could understand. And, and at the time, 
there was this whole idea that perhaps killer T cells, the same thing that our body uses to weaponize against pathogens, because drugs that were shown to be effective for inflammatory response and nabral things that were like leading to a, an over inflammatory an inflamed system, I guess you'd call. But I noticed that those same drugs were used for a spinal disorder called osteospondylitis, or no, osteospondylosis, basically like sort of spontaneous fusing of the joints. So anyway, this all came at the same time. Now, to my knowledge, that observation did not kick off a cycle of capital allocation betting on some type of sildenafil-like molecule that could be demonstrated in a clinical setting to improve anything neurodegenerative, particularly on the heels of the most recent Parkinson drug, sorry, um, Alzheimer's drug that was cleared. And this was a drug that failed in the setting the first go, was you know recapitalized. They did another study. The evidence was not statistically significant. The cost of therapies very very high, and really society's dissatisfaction and practically lack of acceptance that there is not currently a good therapeutic intervention for Alzheimer's. Society went out and ended up getting approved, and 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 there were FDA scientists that resigned over that decision. The significance of that, though, is big data in this case before LLM enablement pointed out a discovery that could and still still may be the catalyst for a multi-billion dollar class of drugs that uses this peripheral vasodilation to somehow cross the blood-brain barrier and have a meaningful impact on you know neurodegenerative symptoms. I have no idea, but that is the backdrop. So let's review what we've covered so far. Number one, enabling tech waves, they roll through time like the waves on the shore. Internet, e-commerce, broadband, mobile, Internet of Things, social, blockchain, yada, 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 cord cutting, it goes on and on. Now, there's an, an interesting feature of enabling tech waves that is best described by Gardner's hype cycle. And I, I promise there's a salient point here. So Gardner's hype, hype cycle describes the relationship, you know, Mr. Market, the masses, the way we have with the new thing. So right now, the new thing is AI. And nobody really knows how to make AI do all the magical things that it purports to do. But... The people that are futurists, forward-thinking folks, in part because of their identity as being future-thinking people, everyone's enamored with it. Usually when an enabling tech kind of reaches a critical mass of smart future thinkers are enamored with it, that's when the capital allocation starts to pour in. Seed funds, VC, all of a sudden, the, the, the builders, the people that are trying to create value in this space, they track the interest from the capital allocators, and all of a sudden, you start to see a bubble. There's all these AI startups, big rounds, there's the, 
the press feeds over the, the valuations, and the cycle starts. And so in the, in the Gartner hype cycle, that, that enabling wave, it reaches a peak. And the peak is when really, again, it goes back to capital allocation and assignment of value. When capital allocators no longer are willing to pay just a little bit more for that marginal deal, you hit a peak, and then usually it's something to do with, you know, whether it's four, six, eight, 12 quarters after the first cycle of companies, you know, really don't realize their potential that there is a crash. This thing, this new, new thing is suddenly no longer valuable. All those companies get marked down, recapped, and out of the ashes of that first hype cycle, you get a wave because what, what that does is it washes the speculators out. The best example of that relative to, to current, the new, new thing today, which is AI, is the blockchain. And so right now, crypto quietly is, a, is over Bitcoins at 40,000 coin. Ethereum is, I mean, basically all the speculators, the people that are just there because opportunistically to make money, not not discrediting that, by the way, but it's it's the speculators, the day traders, you know, the, all that all that stuff that pump up the, the new thing, and then when it drops, it's the same thing that it was before. It's just that the people that were just seeking quick returns they leave. The people that remain to build in the ashes of the peak of the hype cycle, those are. The people that are going to, one, build the value and also receive the value. So the significance of that is the, the pace of the waves, a lot like the ocean, sometimes the waves come quickly and sometimes they're few and far between. What we're in the midst of is the blockchain currency was compounded. Sorry, the blockchain enabling wave was compounded. It got bigger and bigger by zero interest rate financing. So the ZERP environment for a deck over a decade, you just had a, a market, the capital markets that were awash with liquidity to begin with. The S&P was roaring for 20 years, made a couple little blips here and there. And then COVID hit, the Fed printed, I don't know, I think we added $11 trillion to the deficit. And suddenly, we have more, we have 25% more cash, more US dollars that existed prior to COVID. And all a lot of that cash made its way into funds. Those funds were all seeking alpha. When you have 0% on fixed income, everything goes to equities. And so that gets everything gets bidded up. So what I'm saying is the hype cycle that you would typically see of COVID getting bidded up and then falling, it was exacerbated by the ZERP environment and just so much capital. So the significance of that now is there is more capital now on the sidelines than I can think of in 30 years. I mean, I, I think it's a, yeah, it's an objective fact in, in, in history. The number of US dollars that have printed and that have been allocated to growth, whether it be in public markets, private equity, quasi-debt venture, growth equity, venture debt, you name it, there's just so much money seeking growth. And as interest rates start to just gradually, even 25, 50 basis points, all of a sudden, the money market accounts, the treasuries, the things that are paying 
a fairly high return, those returns are going to get lower and suddenly people will be once again seeking alpha in equities. And so the significance of that is we haven't even reached anywhere near peak AI. And, and nowhere near. Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, he is raising on the order of $10 billion to begin building his own GPU manufacturing on the order of like SpaceX and Tesla. That is a massive endeavor. And for an LLM AI software company to even have the ability to you know, contemplate going out and ultimately raising, raising billions of dollars for capital expenditures. CapEx is, you know, the ROI that is lower. That is not typically what venture or even growth equity or IPO equity markets investors would typically invest in. That's, you know, it's like buying machines. That's that's later in the in the growth cycle. But that just gives you a sense of how much froth. And one, as interest rates start to decline, the carryover of ZERP, it's not that money was sucked out of the system. Quantitative easing has done very little to address that, although productive. That money's sitting in debt. It's sitting in fixed income, getting 5.5%, waiting for the risk to go back on and go to equities. And so when that happens, you're going to have all this capital going back. It's going to suddenly have an appetite for some degree of risk because taking no risk is going to get less and less attractive in, in fixed income. As that starts to happen, you have two tech waves, blockchain, suddenly you have Bitcoin in US ETFs approved by the SEC, institutional participation in blockchain trading is, is very, very high. The kind of sacrificial lamb of the new tech that got out of hand is in the rearview mirror with Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX. And so absent, independent of what's happening in AI, there, were, there would be an otherwise amazing time to start putting capital to work in blockchain if, if, if the previous tech cycles were to follow. And my money is on that they will. And so it'll be a similar details, but the shape will be consistent. There will be a lot of winners out of the ashes of blockchain from the 20-something to the 25 time frame. But nevertheless, why does that have to do with AI? All right. Well, the point about tech waves is when they start to combine. So it's really cool to have an iPhone that can hold a few songs and play music. It's incredibly cool when you can buy your brand new album directly from iTunes. When you can suddenly do email, phone, and, and Angry Birds, now you have a computer that does all kinds of things. That's magical. Blockchain, the underlying tech, is magic. The use cases that have stuck have been really important and incredibly high utility. The consumer magic moment, many could say is yet to happen, unless you consider buying an altcoin on Coinbase and watching it go up 100%, selling it, buying a Lambo. <laughs> but like real practical things. However, what the Zapier type folks that were building automation layers 
what they're allowing different APIs to do is to work with each other. That is a fundamental requirement of agent GPTs, which is when a, when a chat GPT and LLM can not only tell you things, it can carry out tasks to completion. You can take your credit card and buy a flight. So in order to do those types of transactions, there's gonna require a lot of trust from the agent of the agent. So rather the principal of the agent GPT. Now, when businesses start, so that trust can very easily be handled by permission using Stripe and other APIs. However, when businesses want to start interacting using LLMs with agent GPTs, that's going to require a trust-based contract system that you have in the Ethereum 2.0 network. So I am running out of time and I'm overstaying my welcome. So here's my pitch. There's a lot of discussion on big data, the limitations back then with the hype relative to now big data is so far in the rearview mirror that it's two or three cycles behind. But when you take big data, okay, then you start taking the effects of doing LLMs and agent GPTs able to carry things out in, in a permission-based system enabled by the blockchain. Imagine for a second, big easy. So the big easy, I'm gonna just give you a, a use case for healthcare, but you could apply it to any body of data. And the larger the data set or the higher volume of disparate data sets, what the Big Easy is gonna do is really simple. It is going to 24 seven analyze, go through this data set. If you give it 10 years of phone numbers, that's all it's gonna go through. If you give it stock prices, commodity prices, payroll data. But in my case, I want IDNs and health systems large integrated private practices to turn over their EHR data to the Big Easy in a way that they control exclusively and let the Big Easy start telling us the non-obvious data set patterns. Because as in the case of, you guessed it, the blue pill, the non-obvious discoveries, dare I say penicillin, it's the non-obvious things where most or many of the great inspirations come from. So we should continue to iterate in the way that mankind always has. But when we have this power, this unlimited computational ability to scroll through data and look for p-values and correlations, my argument is the Big Easy should do it. So let's unleash it. With the Big Easy, companies, IDNs, private practices, any groups that can come together and pull their data sets could be the contributors to the next great discoveries of true healthcare innovation. It's not always easy to know where the unmet need is, but with the Big Easy, the unmet need will bubble to the top and we'll have the power of AI telling us where we should put our capital, effort, and energy to work to improving healthcare. All right, folks, we'll leave it on a bang. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have any suggestions on how to take the Big Easy concept from right now, a kernel of an idea, to making it real, to changing patients' lives, please email me at jeff at jeffsmith.co. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unmet Need. If the Big Easy concept is interesting to you, if any part of you says, gosh, this must exist, even if you have no idea how you can help, please email me.
solutions to the problems of the world that become real start with that motivation. I hope this episode might have sparked that in you, and if it didn't, stay tuned for the next one.